0: If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 6 and 18. And then I'm also going to read from Matthew 527 to your Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount on these this commandment. Um, but right, we're we're working through the, the Christian sex ethic. And it's Basically, we're working through these Ten Commandments here. Every commandment is showing from a different angle, a different viewpoint, a different vantage point that I am more sinful than I ever realized. Uh, That that the the depths of my self-centeredness and inability to see the world as God sees it is so far beyond than what I originally was able to see. And at the same time, that makes the cross bigger, because <laughs> look at how much God loves me. He He knew all that from before the foundation of the world and still determined to come down to give his life as a ransom for many, for us, to make the impure pure in, through his holiness, as we're going to see. And so as we meditate on the seventh commandment, which always comes with all kinds of guilt and shame and that's, it's the nature of that particular sin. Remember, this is where it's always leading you to the cross. It's leading you to the empty tomb, uh, leading you to the king who says to his bride, um, you are. this is your future. You are beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And so let's, with that introduction, let's read our passage and pray. This is God's word. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall not commit adultery. Then in Matthew five, verse twenty seven, Jesus says, You have heard it said that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And this is the word of our God spoken to us today in love. Uh, Let's pray. Father, our God, we thank you that when we are faithless because of your covenant love, you are faithful to us. And I pray as we meditate on the seventh commandment today, Lord, that you would show us the truth and beauty of Jesus's desire to be joined eternally with us in the covenant of marriage uh, with his church. And he did that he is the one who loved us and gave himself up for us so that we might be presented to him in splendor, without flaw and without blemish. And so for all of these things to happen, Lord, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to teach us. We need your spirit to change our desires, to do battle with these things that we feel we cannot live without. And we ask that your spirit would change us so that our, our friendships, our marriages who we are, would reflect Christ's love for the church as we meditate on the gospel today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I need to switch sides here. You know, as, as we jump into the, the seventh commandment, you know, there's a couple things that will be a helpful introduction. Uh, one, it's interesting, in, in our culture, the, one of the major obstacles to even have a conversation about Christianity today is right here, is do not commit adultery, uh, flee from sexual immorality, all of those seventh commandment issues, right? So in general, most people would agree, right? Your, your neighbor has the right to not have their marriage ruined by someone's infidelity, that that's what this commandment is doing, right? It's, it's guarding and protecting the institution of marriage. Uh, that, that your neighbor has the God-given right to not have their marriage wrecked by another person's desires. But then it's also communicating this reality, it's part of the bigger storyline of the Bible that sex is to only take place in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. Right, that's Jesus in in the book of Matthew when he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Right, and... So you get into conversations with our non-Christian friends, they, they say things, I hear this often, right? It's, it's repressive, it's appalling, uh, it's offensive, it's too restrictive, I can't buy into that, I don't want it, right? So you got that reality of we're in a culture that says there should be very little if no taboos regarding our sexuality, On the flip side, when you read the New Testament, what's fascinating is, you know who seem to be the most attracted to Jesus, who show the most amount of devotion, who are the most stunned by grace, who want to be with Jesus and near Jesus? It are those who are very clear, obvious seventh commandment breakers. Uh, Those who have ruined marriages, but they're known by reputation of doing that, um, Maybe they've been through several broken relationships. That's that's John four and the woman at the well. Right, the story is if they they run and hear the gospel, they hear about Jesus, and they they've already discovered that their chosen liberation has left them lonely and miserable. It did not give them what they hoped. And so, it's fascinating, right? Jesus will say to the Pharisees, the lawkeepers, the tax collectors, and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom before you, right? It's Matthew 21. Well, there's a beautiful place in Luke 7 when Jesus is eating a meal with uh, Simon, the Pharisee, and, and right picture a, r- a room full of moralizing, self-righteous men. And a woman of the city comes in, a sinner who is known by reputation to be some kind of marriage destructor, Right? We don't know if it means she's a prostitute. We don't know if that means she was a serial adulterer. Like we don't get those details just that she's a great sinner and everyone knows it. And she comes in and begins to wipe Jesus' feet with ointment and she starts weeping and crying and washing his feet with her tears, right? The kind of intimate moment that would be awkward no matter who you are and where you're at, right? And Simon has the audacity to say to Jesus, if you were a prophet, you would know what kind of woman you're letting touch you. And Jesus responds to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, tell me, teacher. He said, well, a I'm paraphrasing here, a certain loan shark had two debtors. One owed on him $50,000, the other 5000 Right? When they found out they could no longer pay their debts, the, the debt the loan shark canceled the debt of both now which one do you think would love him more and simon responds well teacher i suppose the one who had the larger debt and then jesus says the one who is forgiven much loves much and he looks at the woman and says your sins are forgiven your, your faith has saved you go in peace all right so i share those two hundred Two points of introduction because our our secular culture is repulsed by the Bible's sex ethic. But in the New Testament, those who failed to keep it are magnetically attracted to Jesus. Because they've become aware that their lives have been shattered by their decisions. And found someone who forgives and welcomes and heals. And so... Right, if you're repulsed by the Bible's teaching, do you, the question is, do you really know who you are rejecting? Do you really know what you're rejecting when you throw, try and get rid of the Seventh Commandment's restrictions? Right. So just something to think about as we jump in here. Right, first, first point this morning as we meditate on this, that, that the Seventh Commandment, marriage, about marriage, is telling a story. Um, We've got to put it in the bigger context. Right. We read the commandment, do not commit adultery. It's found here in Exodus 20, and, and it's also found in Deuteronomy 5. And it's very clear God is commanding faithfulness between a man and a wife. Right? Genesis is part of the story too. Right? Let, what, what Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. God, God is commanding purity in marriage. But you pull pull back a little bit and look at the story there are two major events that have taken place for Israel that help make sense of why this commandment is given. Uh, first, who does Israel belong to? Right, that's that's Deuteronomy 5:6. I keep reminding you like this this is we are saved by grace, you're in a relationship with the Lord. That's why the with the context for these commandments Right? Now, Israel is now bound in a covenant relationship with the Lord who loved them first. And interestingly, the, the prophets will look back at Mount Sinai when they received the law and say that is when Israel was married to Yahweh. Right? So you can think of Exodus 19 when God says to his people, if you obey my covenant and keep my commandments, you'll be my treasured possession. Will you? It sounds like a declaration of intent from from a marriage. In Israel, of course, in their youth, in the covenant ceremony, we would add probably ignorance and (laughs) very optimistic thinking is, we will. We will do everything the Lord commands us. They're bound together in marriage. And so it's this idea that, that Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, he is the bridegroom. Israel, she is Yahweh's beloved bride, and they are now in relationship together, which makes sense of all the passionate disagreements you find in the rest of the Old Testament when they don't get along well. When, when Israel breaks the covenant, because it's the pain of breaking a marriage, of betrayal. Right? So here's another place you can come up with this, Song of Songs. Right? If you're reading through the Bible in the first, for the first time and you're, you get to the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, you're like, what in the world is this and why is it here? Because it's blunt and graphic enough to make even us modern people blush. Right, And Song of Songs in chapter 3 describes the bride anxiously waiting for her groom, the king, to come. And it's about a marriage. It's a love story between a, a husband and 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 her His bride, and this is the way it's described, in the distance, she sees the king coming. And she says, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Right, so someday we'll do a sermon series on Song of Solomon. Um, But the big idea is that She's describing her husband, the bridegroom coming for her, the king who loves her, with the same language to describe God coming out of the wilderness to rescue Israel in columns of smoke. Right? So the, the story of the Song of Songs is about this passionate relationship between a human, between humans, sure, but it's also describing the passionate relationship between God and his bride. Right, that, that God loves his people with that kind of intense, passionate, married kind of love. Right. Uh, my Hebrew professor called it, um, it, it's love that is white, hot, and rock solid. <laughs> right. And Israel was to respond to God's white, hot, and rock solid love with something similar with that. Unashamed, white-hot, faithful, fierce, married love. Right? Be faithful to God because he's been faithful to you. Right? So that's, that's part of Israel's story. When he says don't commit adultery, it's in the context of, hey, we are in a relationship. Don't commit adultery. Don't cheat on me by breaking commandments. Right? Second important incident is the golden calf story. Right? Exodus 32 Moses is up on the mountain too long and the people persuade Aaron to make this golden calf and they call it Yahweh and say, this golden calf has saved us from Egypt. And they, have, they throw feasts and they, they're having some kind of shady party with all kinds of commandment breaking going on, right? Likely breaking the seventh commandment as well. But what's interesting is, do you know how God and Moses describe this event? They describe it as a great sin, right? And a great sin, so often in the Old Testament, is almost always referring to adultery. Genesis 20, verse 9, when Abraham lies and says, Sarah's my wife and lets her get taken into another man's harem. And Abimelech is saying, Abraham, how could you even let me consider this great sin that you would lie to me like that? Right? And so Israel has already broken the covenant by the time we get to Deuteronomy and hear this commandment again, that they're in this covenant together, a relationship where God is their groom and, and they are the bride and they're to, to live together and to love one another. And Israel has already broken God's heart. He's, they've already committed adultery against God. And so we need these details because... God's command to not commit adultery is part of the bigger story of the Bible that is telling you over and over again that God is faithful. Right? That that for Israel's marriages, we, God wants you, human marriage to be rock solid and white hot and free from that pain of betrayal. Right? But it's it's that the commandment is saying, imitate the Lord your God who loves you. Right? Imitate. May your marriages reflect the Lord's love for you. The Lord who loves you with a love that is as strong as death, whose jealousy is as fierce as the grave, as it says of Song of Songs. And so our culture wants to separate those two, but I, to have a conversation about God's view on sex and marriage, you've got to hold them together. That you cannot separate the seventh commandment from the reality that God has loved Israel rescued her from slavery, and married her at Mount Sinai and says, now you imitate me. Go be strange in the world by reflecting my faithful love. Go say no to your desires. Right? I mean, it's, it's saying, imagine, imagine what it would be like to really know, to personally know that you are loved with a love that will never cheat on you, will never turn your his back on you. That He is faithful, All right? We're not even getting into Ephesians, right? We haven't gotten to the story of Jesus yet, but it's it's this metaphor: is God is the faithful lover who has been wounded by Israel. All right? Ephesians five expands it, right? Jesus has. He's the faithful bridegroom who loves the church. We are his bride. Or you get to Romans 7, it says the same thing. The church now belongs to Jesus, who has been raised from the dead. And now, through Jesus, we're going to bear fruit in our bodies for God, through that union with Jesus. You can hear the marriage metaphor. And so... The Bible itself is telling you the story of a God who not only knows the pain of adultery and betrayal because he loves an impure adulterous people with a steadfast married love but he's also telling you look at the the passion the desire the the, the gift that he is giving you um, this bottomless depths of his love is saying, I want to spend eternity with you in romantic ways. The whole idea of romance, even in marriage, comes from the Bible. It comes from Christians who meditated on the idea, if Jesus loved the church with that kind of passionate love, if the bride of Christ is always on Jesus' mind, uh, if his eyes are always on the one whom he died for, what would it look like for that friendship to invade and permeate a human marriage well the husband would be thinking about his wife he'd be treating her body as his body he would lay down his life for her Uh, I mean C.S. Lewis would say the whole idea of romance is the result of Puritan poets (laughs) right Usually we get insulted for our view being puritanical. We should say thank you. You should thank me because you are searching for romance, right? It's a puritanical idea within the context of marriage. Right? See the context for the adultery command is you're given a, a God is swearing to love with a love that will not disappoint. And that's a better story than what culture is offering. Right? Isn't it? I mean, you, I listen, for whatever reason, YouTube sent me an interview between uh, Joe Rogan and Matt Walsh, right? Not people I normally listen to, um, as evidenced by the smirks, <laughs> right? But it's interesting, they're just discussing, what is marriage? And so Joe Rogan is saying to, to Matt Walsh, right, if two people love each other, and they want to make that loving bond formal and get married, why should they not do it? What harm is it going to do to your heterosexual marriage? Right, love is what makes marriage subjective. Love, right? That's that's the way our culture is teaching us. Right, and Matt Walsh, who's curmudgeonly Catholic, I should say, um, didn't use the Bible at all, but he's making that traditional argument that marriage is this bedrock for families and a stable society. Right, that that the context for having children is to have a husband and wife be faithful to each other and get married, um, all right? And so you have one story that's saying it's all about our love for one another, and then you have the traditional view, right, which is you need marriages to to form a stable society. Right, what does the Bible say? Yes, but there's so much more, <laughs> right? Is marriage really just a a subjective a formal bond of a subjective love that comes with government benefits or is there more right if we're going to be christian we should have a christian answer for what marriage is right and marriage is divinely designed by god to tell and retell the story of his covenant love for his bride which includes family and children uh, includes even romance, right? We, we talked about that. But there's boundaries, right? That's why Tim Keller says it fantastically. He says, the Bible says sex is a model and foretaste of the ecstasy of knowing God perfectly. In heaven, when we know God face to face and we enter into a union of love with him and all the other people who love him on that great day, there's going to be such a deep delight and towering joy and a deep security of such nature that the most rapturous intimacy between a man and a woman is just a a slight echo of that right? the the love the lack of loneliness that we're pursuing when we have impure thoughts right The Bible's constantly saying, "Yeah, but you're drinking from a From a well that's going to run dry. No human being can live up to that kind of expectation, right? This is this is why this view of marriage gives great hope for for marriages, right? Because if you know it's if you know marriage is just a signpost, um, a pointer to something greater, more fulfilling, more satisfying, that it's not the destination. It frees you from putting all that crushing weight on another human being to say, satisfy me at all times, fulfill me, treat me like the princess I know I am, (laughs) right? Or whatever the language may be, right? It keeps you from idolizing another human being, right? It gives great hope for those who are single. Because if you have the view that, that marriage is the best way and the ultimate way to have a fulfilling human life, there is a large contingency of human beings who will never experience that joy for whatever reason. Maybe you're, you had it and you were divorced, or maybe you're lonely, or maybe you're friendless, or you just, marriage just has not been in God's plan for your life, or is a willful choice. Right? It's saying no matter who you are in Christ, you can have this ecstatic, divine life, divine love from a faithful lover who will never leave nor forsake you. Right? So the first point, if we're going to talk before we get into the ethical uh, demands of this commandment, you have to put marriage in the story of God's love for his people. Um, and that, that the command to not commit adultery is a command to imitate God's faithfulness. Imitate God's purity. Um, so what is forbidden? What is the seventh commandment saying no to, right? right. If we're gonna imitate God, that sets up boundaries uh, so that we can flourish. And right, if I printed the larger catechism with scripture references for you in the bulletin. So there's 101 rabbit trails we could go down. So if you have questions, right, come find us. We'd love to talk about it. Let's start with Matthew 5 and Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because he takes this commandment and takes it to the realm of the unachievable, right? Because he says, not only does the act of adultery make us guilty, but so does lustful intent in the heart, Um, right? It's not just behavior that this commandment is governing and ruling it's trying to restrain even our fantasy life right and so the ideal of course one man one woman in marriage not only means you should not imitate Solomon right Solomon had 700 wives and 300 girlfriends right you should but it's also saying you should not have that kind of harem in your imagination right And so this is what Jesus is saying in the church. Like, one, your righteousness has to be higher than you can even conceive of. (laughs) Because who can do this? But two, imagine what it would be like to be in a community where humans are not just diminished to objects of physical desire, to be used and devoured in your imagination, right? Where you can relate to each other as brothers and sisters, Right, or to use biblical terms, imagine a, a world where people aren't ruled by their animal like desire. Right? And this, this was the ancient world's way of looking at lust, right? If, you have, if you're hungry, eat. Right? If you have sexual desire, find somebody. Right? And what the Bible says is it's you know, an insult if that's your view of sexuality, because that's no different than the animals. When, God, when the prophets want to insult Israel and in their lack of faithfulness, you know what they, describe, call, they call Israel, right? You're, you're a wild donkey in the heat, just sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? No one, no one should bother wearing themselves out finding her because in her month, you will find her. All right. It's an insult to say, I have these desires, and I'm no different than an animal, and I can't restrain them. Right. Of course, the, the flip side, right? Let's, let's, let's really ch- dig into what Jesus is saying. If you're going to imagine a community where humans aren't diminished to just their physicality and their attractiveness, um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal called How the Sexual Revolution Has Hurt Women. Right. It's an interesting place to find that. And our argument is, is, you know, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, my math is off whenever it was in the 60s, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> right. Culture assumed that if you just get rid of all the taboos that Christianity has introduced and restrained on us, then we'd all be free and happy. But how has that worked out for women? Right. That's what We just went through the Me Too movement. Right? It, it, it hasn't worked out well because women are the ones who've been taken advantage of over and over again by guys not looking for commitment. Right? Young girls are being harmed because these teenage boys have been taught how to relate to women through what they've seen on the internet or what they've seen on movies. Right? And she, So she ends her article with this. It says, you know, the word chivalry is now deeply unfashionable but it probably describes something of what we really need. And where are you going to get any kind of regulations on, on our sexuality apart from some kind of religious experience? All right. So if you, you put Jesus' command here, all right, don't lust after another person. It's saying imagine what it would be like to see somebody as human, not someone to be used. Or to imagine a love so great and satisfying where you don't need to use others to feel less lonely, right? you can actually build friendships. <laughs> right. And so this commandment is restraining our imagination. It's we've already talked about can talk about pornography, uh, the way that young people are learning about relationships unrealistically. Right. The obvious implication is if you shall not. Uh, lust in your heart after another person that would clearly outlaw these inappropriate images, right? If that's you, talk to somebody. You can't break through this on your own. This commandment is saying don't do that because it's not honoring the image of God in in male and female as God designed them. This commandment also forbids divorce. Uh, except for sexual immorality and abandonment. And in our tradition, we would often argue that it can include abuse as well. Um, But if the ideal is God's eternal faithfulness to his bride, then the ideal in Christian marriage is faithfulness till death do us part. Um, The disciples panicked when they heard Jesus said that. Well, who wants to get married then? (laughs) It's like, thanks, guys, that's helpful. Which probably is evidence of the truth of the Bible, right? If they put that detail in there, um, right? But you know, Jesus is saying that God has joined man and woman together to imitate his love. So don't break what God has joined together, right? And even in Deuteronomy, you get to chapter 24 and there is a law allowing for divorce. And it says, feel free to turn there if you've got your Bibles, um, it's Deuteronomy 24. All right, verse 1. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And it keeps going on here. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Don't bring this sin upon the land that the Lord is giving you. Um, There's a lot more there. But the guys in the New Testament are saying, Jesus, if you're telling us that marriage uh, is lifelong, why did Moses make room for divorce in the law? Why why is there a passage that guys can pull out and say, well, if I've, I found indecency, which is probably adultery, um, then I can divorce her. And Jesus is saying, well, it's because you all have hard hearts. It's because God... God, God and Moses knew the human heart when this law was given. And so it's to restrain, a, to restrain the human heart, knowing that there will be situations where relationships are going to break down. Right? But from the beginning, the ideal, it was not so. So Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries, and marries another commits adultery. Right? It's this heavy stuff. Jesus says that divorce is not permitted except for Im- sexual immorality and abandonment. That, that's Paul in, in, in Corinthians. All right, so, but you got to keep that in the storyline of the Bible of, of who God is. The well, next question is, well, what is sexual immorality? Right, Jesus, what do you mean? And it's this Greek word, porneia, and it's kind of a catch-all for anything that deviates from the ideal of men and women. Um, So that would say, it would include any kind of sex outside of marriage later in other parts of the New Testament. that, That what the commandment is prohibiting in particular is any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Right? So someone comes to you and says, well, Jonathan and David, they were really close friends. They must have been really intimate. Well, both of them were married. Right? That they would have committed adultery if they did that really if they did this unspeakable thing that the Bible also says is not okay. Um, right? First Thessalonians chapter 4 says this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right? You belong to him how what does that look like well abstain from sexual immorality so that each one of you know how to control his own his or her own body in holiness and honor not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God so you see you're getting the image here right that that what what the commandment is after is saying as humans we've let our desires just run rampant and it's made us miserable it's broken down relationships Right? Anyone who's ever talked to someone in the throes of divorce and one of them has said, well, I just saw, met someone and I love them, and who am I to go against what I love? Right? The Bible says don't do that because then you're no different from the Gentiles. You're no different than the animals. Uh, the gospel comes and gives you a new power, the Holy Spirit, God's love, and that now does battle against those desires that are unhealthy. Uh, this precludes homosexuality. Right? It's a big conversation these days. I mean, it's it's really, I would argue, impossible to read the Bible and f- say it's okay. People try, um, but it's repeatedly called a sin in the Scriptures. That marriage is to be between a man and a woman, from the be- beginning, designed to show Christ's love for the church so that she might be fruitful and multiply, that there's supposed to be a like difference of fruit. You hear the language of fruitfulness and intimacy, right? One of the reasons it's a sin is because it doesn't reflect God's love for the church. It's not God's design for us at creation, right? So every one of these points could be a whole sermon, but just think about this, right? This is a topic that we cannot avoid. Um, It's just everywhere. Commercials, uh, it's in the workplace. We have friends, right? And I would argue as Christians, we should have friends who are homosexuals, just they're in the community. They need to know us, that we're human too, right? It's one of the worst things is when we don't know each other and we just blast each other across the aisle. Right? But a couple things that would be helpful to have a conversation about it, right? Homosexual desires are not the only desires condemned in the Bible. There is a whole litany. There are 66 books that, att- that come after all kinds of different things. There are 10 different commandments, all at the, the level of our desires, the more you break them down. Right? So it's not the worst sin. We talk about it a lot. In the church, perhaps because culture is talking about it a lot, and this is a friction point. But there are other things that that are wrong with humans that we need to work on. Um, Second, I know in our culture that already makes us the bad guy. Uh, We're going to be rejected, we're going to be despised, we're going to be misunderstood. We're going to be treated as what we are, exiles in this world. And if you're in exile, as the New Testament says, that means you're an outsider. You have a whole different way of living and seeing and thinking and likely not going to have the cultural power and influence that we would like. Particularly true in New York. <laughs> right? And so I think it's just helpful. Embrace who we are. We are Christians. Because we belong to Jesus, we have a particular view of marriage. And if we have that particular view of marriage, that means we're going to be outsiders. We're going to be misunderstood. In some ways, you just kind of have to embrace that painful reality. It's part of taking up your cross and following Jesus, of being misunderstood. Right? But I don't think we should be ashamed to the point where we have to submit to the, to the gossip and slander that gets thrown our way. We, get, we have an opportunity to defend the truth with gentleness and respect, as Peter would say, right? We're not extremists, we're, we're just pro-marriage in ways that our culture can't imagine, right? So just think about it, you can have that conversation, say do you understand that 75% of the world's population right now has that view that marriage ought to be between a man and a woman, right? It's not that majority minority determine right and wrong, but it just means we're not as strange as this cultural moment wants to make us be, right? And awkwardly, those who believe that there should be that uh, there should be no boundaries on our sexuality, right? They tend to be white Westerners, Americans, Europeans, and so unless our culture is saying it's okay to go colonize the worldview of of those we don't think are as enlightened as we are, with our free view of anything goes sexuality right everybody this is the point right everybody has boundaries the question is how are we going to treat those who have a different view on marriage right? so we don't need to be ashamed of it third i think it's we need to we need to let the power of the gospel make the church safe for sexual sinners to meet Jesus right? if tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes in the New Testament are drawn to Jesus and his forgiveness and the, the proclamation of the kingdom that means our welcome should at least at bare minimum imitate Jesus' right they can come in, they can worship, they can listen to the scriptures, they can wrestle with the claims of the Bible with us, they can eat and drink with them Right, be friends, get to know each other, disagree, but still love each other. And then fourth, recognize um, that it's got it's a difficult thing for people who have same sex attraction to wrestle with the, the claims of Jesus. Because there's pressure on the left to say, why would you ever put boundaries on your desires? And there's pressure on this side in the church to say, "Uh, do you really believe what we believe? (laughs) And so I I found it helpful. If we're going to have same-sex attracted followers of Jesus who are committed to a life of celibacy in the church, or to even get to that stage, they need to see that they aren't the only ones giving something up for Jesus' sake, saying no to their desires. Right? Whereas one, one pastor put it who, who is single, who wrestles with same-sex attraction, and is saying, I'm putting it to death, I'm battling it. He says, "If, if you're, we're, to live a life permanently single, to never have sex, is to declare to a stunned and confused world that there are more important things than sex and romance. It's more important than having a life partner. And there's nothing that calls out the idols of Western culture more powerfully than a person who gives these things up because they love Jesus, right? That's tough, right? We all need community to be safe, to be a place that covers our shame. Sexual sinners in particular so, what's our hope together? This is we'll bring this to an end. There's, there's loads we could go through in the catechism, and I'd be happy to do that if you want to talk about it. Right. So, you got the Christian ideal. I'm hoping you can hear that as we meditated on the ideal. That who in the world can Psalm 130, Lord, if you were to mark iniquity, if you were to pay attention to every time my desires shot to the left or to the right of what you expect of me. Who could stand? Right. So why don't you turn to Ephesians five? Ephesians five, twenty five. So Paul is writing to the church and trying to work out the implications of of the gospel, of who Jesus is, and and he's, I'm picking up in the middle of an argument, but he says, uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See what Paul does? He wants to say, here's here's the principle that will change your marriages. It's, It's Christ's love for the church and he goes all the way back to Genesis to the ideal at the beginning and says you know what Adam and Eve's story was about when God gave Eve to Adam it's a profound mystery but it's it was God's plan from the beginning to set up the pattern for Christ and the church and so you're reading Genesis for the first time and you see Adam, Adam sees his naked and unashamed wife and he explodes in poetry. So at last, she's the one who's fulfilling, she's helping me with my loneliness. At last, there's someone like me but different than me. Right? How does Jesus love the church? Well, he gave himself up for his bride who was naked and deeply ashamed. Because of our sexual sin. And he loved his bride, he gave himself up for her by taking the curse upon himself, which involved dying naked and alone and ashamed on the cross. I mean, if if this is a covenant of marriage that that God has entered into his people with, and the the, the just Punishment for a marriage where a spouse turns their back on the other and cheats on them is the marriage is done. Uh, divorce. What you're seeing Jesus do in love for the church is go through a sort of covenant divorce, taking the curse of the law. God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And he, he went through that to make his imperfect bride beautiful. That he might, that we might never be left alone, that we might be given this white-hot and rock-solid love in Christ Jesus. See the the, the invitation of the gospel. You say, yeah, no human being is pure because of the fall, but the impure come get cleansed, get washed, get forgiven. Um, you know, the the unfaithful spouse is given that beautiful, radiant white robe of righteousness, and treated like. Well, you are all together beautiful, my love, says Song of Songs. Within you, there is no flaw. That's our future when we get to heaven. But right now, because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that's, that's our story. Right? See, there is only one love in this universe where the groom, Jesus, always has his eye on his bride, who always has her on his mind, who sees her failures and faults and says, I'm staying. I know you, and I'm not leaving until <laughs> you are without spot or wrinkle, until you are holy and without blemish. That's, that's the, the story that you've been married into through faith in Christ. And so when you, when you understand what the, the story of the gospel is telling you, when you get to know Jesus like that, who was faithful when we were faithless, Paul says, go retell that story in the way you love your spouse. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. It's a powerful motivation to say the sex ethic is not only good and true, it's, it's beautiful because this is how God loves me then to flee sexual immorality as the new testament says let's pray father i pray for for us as a church Uh, you tell us blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god and we know that the only one who was pure in heart was jesus and because of his curse we get the blessings Uh, we get to see you we get to see your love we get to hear you betroth yourself to us in righteousness you give us the holy spirit as as the engagement ring so to speak the down payment that not only do do we belong to you now but you will come back for us and when you come back for us you will bring the new heavens and new earth and we will dwell with you in this perfect world of love with you and with our neighbor But until that day, Lord, we are in a battlefield, a minefield, where our desires are pulling us in every different direction. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit would do battle for us, uh, that you would restrain our hearts, uh, that our desires would align with Jesus' desires for us. And for that to happen, that is the work of your grace, the work of your spirit. And we, we ask for these things to happen. So may Hope Church be known as a place that is not only safe for those who failed, but also uh, training us to love as you loved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.